Hey, I'm Stephen Billings, and thanks for checking out this message today. We're so glad you're here and would love to connect with you. You can text 97000 with the words River Connect to share any prayer requests or just to say hello. It would be so great to hear from you. Lastly, if you would like to give to the River Church today, you can give by texting the amount that you would like to give to 84321. You can also head to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the page as well. Thanks again for joining us, and I hope you have a blessed day. Well, that was super loud, and I feel like I have to yell at you now! <laughs> Morning, everybody. If you got a Bible, let's grab them together and open up to the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter number four. Great to see you today. Glad to be uh, together here. If you're a guest, I want to welcome you. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you to take out your phone, your smartphone, uh, download a Bible app or the River Church app, and there's a Bible feature on there, but I want to encourage you to be following along and seeing the Word of God uh, for yourself The book of Ruth, chapter number 4, we're going to pick up in verse number 13 uh, together in just a moment. But great to be with you, great to see you. Ruth, chapter number 4, verse number 13. The Bible says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. It is the beginning of a beautiful ending of a wonderful story. It's a story that begins with tragedy, really with a funeral and then another funeral and then another funeral. And um, these three ladies go from having husbands and support and safety together in their family to being widows. And they make the long journey, Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, make the long journey from Moab back to the town of Bethlehem. And Naomi is a changed woman. Tragedy had changed her. She was broken. Matter of fact, her name suggests and means sweetness, and she doesn't even want to be called by her own name anymore because she's no longer, doesn't even view herself as sweet. She says, call me Mara. I'm a bitter woman. Life has broken me. And what transpires over just this very short, concise story is a beautiful story of redemption, of God's redemption. And as we talked about last week, maybe that is your story and your family where you are longing for the Lord to redeem what life, what sin, what circumstance has broken. And the power of the gospel is that Jesus can redeem broken families. And so Boaz literally becomes the redeemer, and he marries Ruth, and she became his wife, and the scripture says there, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. They are married, and a child soon follows, and a celebration comes. Verse 14, then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age and your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Now we might read that and think, okay, we're talking about 
this character of Boaz, but that I don't believe is what the scripture is talking about there. It's talking about the birth of this child who is named down there in verse number 17. His name is Obed, and Obed means servant or serving. And so this beautiful gift from the Lord of Obed comes to Ruth and to Boaz, and not just to Boaz and Ruth, but also to Grandma Naomi. This is a gift from the Lord. Psalm 127, verse 3 through 5, and I'll just read it for you in just a moment, tells us what a gift that children are. That every child, regardless of the circumstances surrounding their birth, regardless of disability, whether physical, emotional, or mental, we believe that children are a gift from the Lord. Psalm 127, verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. And every time I read that verse, I have a hard time not saying the fruit of the loom. I'm just going to be honest with you. I have to concentrate on the word being womb. Maybe I've ruined that for you. I'm sorry, everybody. But verse 4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The Legacy Standard Bible says children are an inheritance from the Lord. The New Living translates, translates that passage, children are a gift from the Lord. Here's what we want to understand. Children are a gift. They're a gift. You are a child here. You are a gift to your mother and to your father from the Lord. I want you to know that. Now, if you're going to go home and be a brat today, I do not want you to say when you're about to get punished or grounded or get a spanking or whatever it might be, hey, you can't punish me. I'm your reward from the Lord, okay? <laughs> Nor do you as parents say, Lord, this is uh, no more rewards. Thank you for me. But we believe that children are a gift from the Lord. And we know that some folks in here, maybe those sitting in this room or watching online, um, infertility is a real struggle for you. And we want to acknowledge that. And um, we want to encourage you. We want to pray for you and with you. And certainly we would not want to imply in any way, shape, or form that the Lord is punishing you. Okay, But as a general rule, we see here in the scripture that children are a gift from the Lord. And not just to their parents, but we see there in Ruth that they're a blessing and a reward to grandparents. To grandparents. Now, I always like to yell at grandparents because you are the worst rule followers and forcers on planet Earth. But this last summer, I had my daughter get married, and I thought, okay, I understand a little bit. <laughs> Just mentally preparing myself for what the Lord may bring in the future. But Naomi's story of going from sweet to bitter and then back to sweet, we see the Lord redeeming that plan. We see the Lord blessing. And the Bible says there in Ruth 4.14 that it is the women surrounding Naomi. It's really the same kind of group, the same chorus, if you will, likely the same women who were there when Naomi said, don't call me sweet anymore, I'm a bitter woman. Life has, has beat the sweetness out of me. And now they are surrounding Naomi and they're celebrating together, but they're also celebrating with her 
that the Lord, you see it there in verse 14, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And so they bless the Lord, they honor the Lord, and then they begin to celebrate the gift that Obed is and that Obed will be, verse 15, a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age. So you thought you were going to live the rest of your life in bitterness, but God has made the ending very sweet. The passage continues, verse 16. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. Now, of course, the son had not been physically born to Naomi. The son had been born to Ruth and Boaz. But this is a beautiful, full-circle, redemptive story for Naomi. They called him Obed. Now, the passage continues. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, look at verse 18. We're going to read to the end of the chapter here. It says, now these are the generation of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram, and Ram fathered Aminadab, and Aminadab fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Salmon, and Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Now, who is David? David is one of the central characters in the Old Testament. He was a great king of Israel, but he did not begin his life in royalty. He began as a shepherd, and from there he was a musician and a poet and became a great warrior and ultimately this great king who made the nation of Israel great. Boaz and Ruth are his great-grandparents. I want you to think about that. Their story, we could leave Ruth in kind of this obscure, kind of, don't mean this in a derogatory sense, but kind of this backwoods kind of love story. Oh, that sweet Boaz found Ruth, and Ruth found Boaz, and man, a story went from tragedy to triumph, and it's just this terrible story that turned out so beautiful, it's wonderful. But if you leave it on its own, you miss out on the beautiful story arc that God himself is writing. You see, because... Boaz and Ruth had a son who had a son. And then that son had a son. And I want you to leave your spot in Ruth or hold your spot in Ruth and go to the New Testament to Matthew chapter number one. And we're going to see the beauty of that story continuing. Matthew chapter number one. And oftentimes when we come to these particular passages of Scripture, it's easier to skip them or avoid them because there's a lot of confusing names and you think, why is that in the Bible? And Matthew is a genealogy. It begins the gospel there with a genealogy. So Matthew chapter number 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Jesus' genealogy, what we're going to see here, is tied all the way back through David and to Abraham. 
So Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So there's five women mentioned in here. The first one is Tamar. And I won't go through all the details of the, the family drama in this family tree here. Let me say you, it's, tell you, it's very scandalous. But we recognize Perez because we saw his name back in Ruth. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezra, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashan, and Nashan, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. So Rahab shows up in here. There's kind of some collapsing of some generations, but you get the point of succession here. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Ruth, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. What is he identified here as? The king. Well, you continue down through David's line, and you get to verse number 12, and you see the deportation, so you see the exile. And then you come to verse number 16, and there's a man named Jacob, who's the father of Joseph, who's the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So I want you to see God's full story arc of redemption and then reward. Ruth is a Moabite. Now, if you trace the Moabite lineage, it's really quite disgusting how the Moabites came to exist. If you know some of the Old Testament stories, Abraham had a nephew whose name was Lot. Lot lived in a city called Sodom, surrounded by Sodom and Gomorrah in this region that God then destroyed. And Lot fled the city with his daughters, and his wife in the process turned and was judged by God and died. That night, Lot with his two daughters and only what was on him as his belongings, so going from very wealthy to very poor very quickly, he's out and his daughters, some of me as I was studying this, I, I wonder if they thought the destruction was global. But nonetheless, they had this idea that they would get their father drunk that night in successive nights, and they would get pregnant by him. And so that happened, and the son's name was Moab. So Ruth's family tree began in a mess. Ruth's family tree began in just disgusting sin. And yet what does God in his kindness do? At first, it didn't look like kindness. Ruth marries a, a Jewish boy into a God-fearing family. His dad dies, but it's okay. There's, there's the two of us, and then there's our sister-in-law and brother-in-law, and then there's the mother-in-law. The five of us will bond together. We'll, we'll get through this together. And then the two boys die. And so Ruth goes from being part of this God-fearing family where there's safety and all these things to having nothing, but she commits to take care of Naomi for the rest of his life. Now, I believe God really honors that faithfulness and invites Ruth by just his divine providence into the family of God, but also into the lineage of David, and ultimately even greater than that, the lineage of Jesus Christ. And so there's Ruth mentioned who comes from a terrible background, a terrible backstory, and God invites her in his kindness and grace into his family. And so you trace that in Matthew chapter 1 at the end of Ruth as well. 
you see what an extraordinary outcome for Ruth. Her family, her legacy, her reward. You ever just stop and ponder what family legacy are you leaving? It's a heavy question. You ever just stop and think, man, what kind of legacy are we passing on? Maybe in a more practical sense, what's our goal for our family? I mean, what's success? What's the win? I mean, what are we aiming at for a family? What are we working for, striving for, or running after? Many of us have played different amounts of athletics or an activity where a score is being kept. Yesterday, I was watching a couple of my, my daughter play a couple of basketball games, and we wanted to know, you know, what does the scoreboard say, both from a, what's her team have, what's the other team have, and what's on the clock, how much time is left. You, you want to know what the score is because the win is you have more points than the other team. It's very simple. But with our family, I wonder if we have defined what is the win? What are we pushing for? What is the prize? What is our ultimate goal or hope for our family? I, f- I hear very often from parents or grandparents who say, what, what do you hope for your kids? What's your, what's your ultimate goal for your kids? What's your ultimate goal for your grandkids? I just hope that they'll be happy. I, I, just, I want them to be happy. I hope they're fulfilled. I hope they find love or meaning. I often think if we were to just pause and look at the way we live our lives on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis, I wonder if those things are actually even the goal or the win. The legacy we want to leave. I think some of the legacy we want to leave is... Financial success. I mean, how many of us obsess over you know, the financial future? Maybe my age or a little bit younger, a little bit older. Man, what am I going to be able to pass on? What am I going to able to, what am I able to leave behind? And so we spend hours and hours and hours in meetings and in worry and in investments and thousands and thousands of dollars, some more, some less, but we just spend so much time thinking about that as a legacy. For some, maybe it's education or accomplishments or achievements. What do you hope for the next generation? I just hope they find a good job. Have a good career. For others, we spend our life making the win or the prize or the reward trips and vacations or houses or early retirement. That's become the goal for you because you want to maximize leisure and recreation and free time because that means happiness to you. And that becomes the sole focus. 
And so if we just stop to say, what are, you, what are you hoping for? What are you pushing for? What are you striving for? What's the prize that you're reaching for? Man, I'm reaching for retirement because I don't want to go to the work anymore. I want to have time to just do what I want to do and leisure and free time. Or what are you hoping for your high school kid? Man, I just hope they get out and they go to college and they do great. Then they find a great job and a career and then they can buy a house and, and, and then they can you know, get married and then they can have kids and they can be happily ever after. Man, does so much of that sound like the American dream? And so, so many parents, man, chase their kids around every athletic field and gym from here to Timbuktu, hoping that they'll get that scholarship because then that means free college and then that means no debt and then that means happiness. What's the goal of your family? Maybe here you're single. And when I say you're single, I mean there are people, 1 Corinthians 7 talks about those who have the gift of singleness. They are single because they've made a commitment to serve the Lord with their life. But maybe you're a college student, you're a young man or young woman here and you're single. And so I ask you, what's the goal for your family, your future family? I just, I just want to find someone I love, and I just want to love them and be happy. And I suppose in, in ways there's places and spaces for some of these things. But I think those are a lesser legacy than what the Lord wants us to pass on, especially as followers of Jesus. For Ruth, the legacy was that she was welcomed into the family of God and then she was, by divine providence, included in the family, uh, the lineage of Jesus Christ, the plan of God. In Genesis 1 Before sin even entered the world, God says to Adam and Eve in marriage, I want you to be fruitful and I want you to multiply. So over the next few minutes, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm going to try to be done here in the next eight minutes because I'm going to irritate a whole lot of you right now. But I think we are spending our lives and our energy in money for fleeting, empty, hollow, pointless things in our families. And as God's people, we need to have a clear bullseye. We need to have a clear definition of what the win is for our family. And I want you to hear it. It is this. It is to raise children who know, love, serve, follow, and obey Jesus. And who will pass that on to the next generation. 
Now, maybe you're here and you don't have children. Then your job is to partner together with some of the families in here to help them accomplish that goal. The goal doesn't change. Our goal for our families is not to raise academic scholars. Academics is important. My wife and I have fought over this for 20 years. We have this little tug of war where I'm a bookworm and she's like, let's teach him some social skills. And we complement each other very well on those things. Academic success is not the goal. I've had to surrender that before the Lord. Like, no, that's not the chief goal. How about accomplishments? Like if someone looks at you and says, hey, tell me about your family. Wow, I got this kid and he's doing this. He's crushing the world doing this. And I got this daughter, she's doing this. And I got this son, he's doing this. And oh man, let me tell you about my grandkids. And then there's all the photos and they did this and they graduated from this and they got this degree. And all those things are good. But what does that illuminate? That illuminates what you and I think the win is. What does God's word declare the win to be? Raising children who know, love, serve, follow, and obey Jesus and who will raise their children to do the same. Now, Some of you, when you hear that, you are grieved because you sought to do that and your son or your daughter has walked away from the Lord, the things of God. I just want to read this quote from Kent Hughes because I am blessed by his writing so much, but I think this is just a word of, of encouragement to you. He says, Parents often take too much blame for their children's problems and too much credit when they turn out well. Your child... Your grown son or daughter makes their own decisions and they have to choose to follow the Lord. That is, that is on them. But also if they turn out to follow the Lord, we're not passing out gold stars. We give that credit where the credit is due and that is to the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is the goal. Third John says this, John writing, and he's writing about his spiritual children, but it's very applicable to biological adopted children. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Walking in the truth. No, no greater joy than that. Yeah, they might find a job and be successful. They, they might be able to advance, you know, up into the middle or upper class, or they, or they might be able to, you know, have this financial freedom, or they might be able to take this trip, or have this experience, or accomplish this, or achieve this degree. And those things, again, there's a space for those, there's a place for those types of things. But the ultimate goal for God's people in God's families ought to be able to impart the gospel of Jesus Christ to the next generation. Listen, that is the greatest gift that you can give your sons and daughters is to live a gospel-centered life where they know that that is the single most important thing to you. 
whether they excel in school or whether it's a struggle, or whether they achieve great success in athletics or they don't have have an athletic bone in their body. You're like, okay, God designed you this way or designed you that way, but the most important thing to me as a father, the most important thing to me as a mother, the most important thing to me as a parent is that you grow to love and know and serve and walk with Jesus all the days of your life. And I think if we set that goal as singularly in our hearts, I think the way we live our lives will radically change. Let's just take a self-assessment here for a moment. We all have folks in our life who don't know the Lord. The way that they live, how does it look differently than you or me? The priorities that they have for their kids, is that, is that the same as we have? I'm not trying to promote some elitism or arrogance amongst God's people. What the Bible calls us to be is salt and light. And guess what? That's going to be different. The priorities are going to be different. The way we function as parents and grandparents is going to be different. Because we're not trying to soothe some ego thing in our heart by giving them experiences or money or or a legacy of financial freedom. We're trying to pass along the good news of Jesus Christ, hoping that they will pass it on to the next generation. And then when we're just a name on a headstone or a box somewhere, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is being passed on, that there is another generation that is rising up that knows and loves and serves and is passionate about Christ. So to single folks in here, you're a single young man, that's what you ought to be looking for in a wife. You ought to be looking for a young woman who knows the Lord and loves the Lord and wants to serve the Lord with her life and wants to raise children that will be passionate about serving Jesus. And I hope you find it here and I hope you have 10 kids. Maybe not 10, maybe eight. Eight's good, right? My wife and I, we have five kids, and we thought we had a lot of kids, and my brother has seven kids, and his wife is pregnant with number eight. And we're like, listen, dude, you win. You win. We're, we're out. We're out of the game. We have forfeited. We're done. We have been fruitful. We have multiplied. We're out. What's the goal of a godly, gospel-centered family? What's the win? It's to raise children who know, love, serve, and follow, and obey Jesus. As a pastor, I'm a little embarrassed to say that has not always been my goal. Academics, experiences, Those were really high for me. So I would push my kids. I mean, I think at one point, my kids will laugh at this. I think at one point I had them studying five different languages at one time. Six, is that what it is? Thank you, sorry. Six languages. 
and I made a deal with them, they could, they could mock each other if it was in a foreign language. So I don't know if my kids were cussing at each other or not, but you know, they were learning a foreign language. And my wife's like, what, what are you doing? I had to surrender. I had to reorder my priorities for what my hope is for my kids. Maybe for you, it's not academics. Maybe you look at me and you go, man, what a nerd. Maybe for you, it's sports. I mean, how many dads that is the singular focus for them and their sons or them and their daughters? Maybe it's finances. Maybe you don't have a relationship with your sons and daughters because you have just slaved at the office or slaved in the shop because you're like, I want to give them what I never had. How many dads do that? Christian father, the goal for us is that our sons and our daughters would grow to know and love and serve Jesus with their whole life. That's the win. Whether they know how to shoot a basketball or throw a football, okay. But the win is that they know the Lord. I want you to ask yourself and I want you to seek the Holy Spirit on this. If having that goal, changing and reordering your priorities, how does that look different than this week? For me, the conviction is, man, I'll run my kid all over the place to experience this and do this and learn this and um, play this sport and coach them all up on this. Um, Am I scheduling, am I preparing, am I thinking about conversations about the Lord just as much? Like, we'll watch the game together. Are we opening the Bible together? For moms... Maybe your priority is something different. Maybe your priority is that they're beautiful, accepted, loved. That they're independent, that they're strong. That's really boiling it down. That's the number one goal you have for your daughters. Rather than saying, my chief ambition is that my daughter will grow to know and love and serve and follow and obey Jesus all the days of her life. That is my dream and my hope, and that is what I work towards. Maybe you messed up with your kids. Maybe you didn't raise them that way. 
Maybe you came to know the Lord later in life. And hearing this hurts you. It stirs something in you. It grieves you. I want to say this to you. You can go to bat. You can go to war for your kids in prayer. And that's not just lip service. You are seeking the high king of heaven on their behalf. And maybe your grandkids don't know the Lord. And so what you need to do is spend all of that energy in seeking the Lord on their behalf. See, because the only way this will be the win and the priority in our families, the legacy that we leave, is if it starts here. It's fathers and mothers who know the Lord repenting of our worldly ways, our self-ambition. It's repenting of trying to live vicariously through our sons and daughters and saying, no, the chief goal is not that they fix what I messed up. The chief goal is that they know the Lord and walk with the Lord and love the Lord and serve the Lord all the days of their life. As grandmas and grandpas, what's the chief goal? It's that our kids, our grandkids would grow to know the Lord and love the Lord and serve the Lord and walk with the Lord all the days of their life. You're single in here. You say, man, I, I, I long to be married And as a Christian, you need to follow that command. If if God's not calling you to singleness, then you need to follow the command to be married and be fruitful and multiply. Find a believer, fall in love, have kids, and have 15 of them. I upped the number by five. (laughs) And train them to walk with Jesus and love Jesus and know Jesus and serve Jesus. But it begins here. Are you passionate about the things of the Lord? Do you know the Lord? First of all, have you come to know the Lord? Have you repented of your sins and turned to Jesus? Have you confessed with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believed in your heart, God raised him from the dead? Are you saved? And then that posture of repentance is continuous as believers. Are you repenting of sin? The win for families that know the Lord is to raise children who know, love, serve, follow, and obey the Lord. That's the bullseye. That's the win. That's the legacy we want to pass on. Let's pray together.